This morning, if you've looked in the bulletin, or more likely you saw the little tray of plastic cups, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table, communion. And I've got a question for you. What's the first thing that you think of when you think of communion? As a kid at the church I grew up in, I liked communion because on that Sunday the pastor didn't preach. (laughs) But that's the musings of a little boy. Perhaps celebrating communion is a priority for you. But I fear that for many of us it's not a priority at all. Got some evidence to back that up just by the fact that when we do communion in the night service, most people don't come. The reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, celebrating communion, and I'm not lecturing you, I'm confessing with you, can just become something else that we do at church. Part of the fabric, part of the routine. Nothing really special. We sing have an offertory, we greet one another, we hear a sermon, we pick up our little plastic cup with a cracker and juice, and it's done. Then we're thinking about lunch, or we're thinking about the ball game, or where we're going. The box is checked, church is over, now we've got to get back to life. Not trying to manipulate or make people feel guilty for the sake of feeling guilty. I'm simply acknowledging how familiar we get with the routines of church, even something so significant as remembering the Lord's death through the celebration of communion. I'm going to illustrate my point with personal confession. I knew I was going to have the opportunity to preach this morning, which I'm always grateful. Pastor Steve and Michelle are taking a much-deserved break together for a few days. And I immediately, when I know that I'm going to be preaching, I'm thinking, what am I going to teach next? And I thought I would probably preach out of First Peter. It's a book that I've studied a lot. I've preached several messages in night church and on that. So I was thinking about it and I had decided I would probably be in 1 Peter chapter 4 because I knew what I'd preached before, what I'd covered before, what I would have time to deal with on a single message. And so my mindset when I was coming to the office this week was geared into that. Then early in the week, Joel reminded me, oh, by the way, this Sunday is communion. And I'm going to tell you that my first thought was not, that's wonderful, I'm excited. My first thought was, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to shorten my sermon. I already struggled with that. Now I'm going to have to cut material out. How many verses can I cover? I was viewing communion as more of a nuisance to what I wanted to accomplish than the privilege that it is. God immediately convicted my heart of how shameful and sinful my attitude was. So much so that I haven't been able to think of anything else but communion this week of what it is, of what it should mean to me, of what the significance of it is for the life of our church. I think it's fair to say that I've been so convicted, I've thought more about communion in the last few days than I have in years. What's interesting is with all my reflections on communion, and I've thought about it a lot, it ultimately didn't change the text that I was going to teach. If you looked in the bulletin, I am going to teach out of 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to teach the first two verses. That was what I was thinking of originally. 
And my thinking about communion and my wrestling and confession of my own poor attitude about this significant event caused me to think a little differently about the text. The meaning of the text doesn't change. Peter meant what he meant by the power of the Holy Spirit and my personal conviction about my neglect and lazy approach to communion doesn't change the meaning. But I can tell you it changed my approach to the application of this text to our lives. So here's my challenge for all of us this morning. I'm going to be preaching on a text that has personal application. It's dealing with broad themes of Christianity, the kind of things that we're reminded of on a regular basis. But at each point, I'm going to be trying to challenge you to think about the implications of this in light of what we're about to do in remembering the Lord's death. In fact, I've become more and more convinced that this isn't just about the one Sunday a month that we remember the Lord's death, but really it should be the daily focus of our hearts. But since we're going to be looking at chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and since I'm not teaching weekly through this, I want to give a little bit of a background just so you understand what Peter is doing when we get to this text. I originally, years ago, chose to study 1 Peter because I saw so many parallels with the hardships and difficulties of his hearers with our own culture. As we've accelerated our rapid descent, so to speak, towards wickedness and evil, and our society is increasingly rejecting everything related to true biblical Christianity... I saw in Peter's letter to believers who were suffering commonality and I knew there was application to us as our society is increasingly hostile to everything we believe. And Peter is a very practical apostle because he writes deep theological truths but he applies them in a very simple way. Everything is talking about is how do you respond in a difficult, sin-filled, wicked world? The believers that he was writing to were despised and rejected by those around him. Many of them had terrible employment circumstances. Many of them had bad marriages. The government was hostile to them. Other religions hated them. Injustice was prevalent. Life was not fair. Often they did the right thing and they suffered. Peter acknowledges all of those things, but what he calls the hearers to do and what he calls us to do if we're facing any of those circumstances is very simple. I think everything that he's writing about is summed up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Everything in the book is focused on that. He constantly calls us to a life that transcends our circumstances. Even if life isn't fair, if you face the same trials, if you face the same difficulties, if our government continues to show increasing hostility to our beliefs, if we have unreasonable workplaces, if we have challenges in our marriages, if we struggle 
No matter what, the call of God is the same. Be holy as I am holy. In many respects, the book's just a practical primer on how to live life when things are hard. With the ultimate goal always being the same, be like Jesus. Peter understands something that we, I think, at times forget. When we're holy as God is holy, the unbelieving world notices a difference. That's why he gave the admonition in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. It's just meaning as you're amongst unbelievers. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, unbelievers are watching. We live amongst them. Be holy as God is holy. And some of them will see, and even though they might start out accusing you, they may come to faith. No matter our circumstances, Peter exhorts us to press on and live holy, to be a light in the darkness regardless of what's going on. And he understands at times the outcome is going to be bad. He's not giving a cause effect. If you do this, then everything will be happy. He's saying, do this and you'll please the Lord. In 1 Peter 3, 17... He says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. In other words, being holy as God is holy may put you in a situation like Jesus. As he described it in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the issue is not the avoidance of discomfort and hardship. The, the issue is the pursuit of holiness, being like Jesus. Regardless of the cost, Jesus and his example is always supposed to be at the forefront of our minds. So that really is a quick overview of all that Peter has covered up to the point where you get to chapter four. So I'm gonna read the two verses that we're gonna be studying and then I'm gonna introduce the outline and we'll just dive right in. But in all of this, communion's the backdrop, remembering the Lord's death. Following along as I read 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. Again, we're going to see a call to holy living because that's the entirety of the book. But I think we'll also see how the focus of communion, which is supposed to be remembering the Lord's death, has practical implications not just for those rare Sundays where we take the Lord's table, but every day. So as my outline... In the back of my mind was Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. So that becomes the outline. It's very simple. It's only two points. Two practical impacts of remembering the Lord's death. Two practical impacts of remembering the Lord's death. And the first practical impact is this. Jesus' example and death must govern our thinking. Jesus' example and death must govern our thinking. And I'll explain this. It has to do with transforming how we view everything. The beginning of verse one, it says this. Therefore, 
Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. The word therefore is a key word because he's looking back to the foundational truth that summarizes everything we're talking about today. And it's found in chapter 3, verse 18. Look back in your Bibles, up in your devices. 1 Peter 3, 18 says this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter was summing up a key truth of how to live in hard times when life isn't the way we think it should be. When things are difficult and we think things aren't fair, we need to always remember that Jesus had it far worse. And yet he was still obedient to God the Father. Christ laid down his life, the just, the innocent one for the unjust. That's us sinners. And he did it so that he might bring us to God. That's profound. That is what we're remembering every time we celebrate the Lord's table. But Peter is laying this out as foundational truth for every day. One of the things that Peter seems to understand about human nature, no doubt in part because of the Holy Spirit working within him, was that quite often we excuse our sin by our circumstances. And we think if it's not fair, then I'm justified in responding Sinfully. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus' death, in any human sense, was a travesty of justice. We understand theologically, eternally, before the foundations of the world, this was God's ordained plan. But from a human standpoint, in the incarnation, while Jesus was walking on the earth, his trial and death were a travesty of justice. The Roman legal system, even though it was capable of corruption, as are all legal systems, was in general very orderly. And it operated very efficiently. In fact, it was so foundationally appropriate that most European legal systems, certainly the United States legal system as a derivative from England, are based on principles that were contained in Roman law from millennia ago. And one of the normal rules of law which still applies to us, is that there had to be evidence of guilt for a crime. Certainly that would include crimes where capital punishment was possible, but yet in Jesus' case, as the Bible makes clear, there was no evidence of guilt. Certainly there was false testimony, but even the false testimony was inconsistent. There was no evidence under the Roman system that would justify Jesus' death by any stretch of the imagination. When Pilate uttered certain critical words, Jesus should have been set free. In John 18, 38, it's recorded this. Pilate said to him, Jesus, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. In other words, even an unbelieving pagan ruler understood this is an innocent man. But because of the fear of man and the fear of losing his status and the fear of the mob, he went along with murdering Jesus. That's all part of what's in Peter's statement in 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. 
Jesus lived that perfect life. He never sinned. He did nothing worthy of death. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That's the just. Contrast that with us, the unjust. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Peter was reiterating truth taught elsewhere, for example, by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our text in 1 Peter 4.1 is really summarizing all these truths when it says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, he's pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus, his death on behalf of sinners, the just for the unjust, the death that paid for sin once for all. That's what he means. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, it's the same suffering that was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. That was our scripture reading this morning in Isaiah 53. Going to reread a portion of it at verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Peter's dealing with all of that when he says since Christ has suffered in the flesh. I'm not getting ahead of myself but that's what we're remembering when we take communion. Jesus suffering and bleeding and dying for our sins. But Peter's telling us that this is not just a monthly event. This is supposed to be foundational to how we live. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. This is an imperative command. This is saying you must do this and it's personal to all of us. Every one of us, if we know Jesus, we must do this. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose is really talking about the determination of our heart and minds to follow Jesus' example. It is putting on the armor of God. It's actually using biblical imagery and military imagery. It's getting prepared for battle, but it's talking about the battle that occurs in our hearts and minds. We're supposed to purpose. We're supposed to be equipped Determined beforehand that when we face these junctions of difficulty and trials, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to follow his example. Thinking is not a passive activity for a believer. It's preparation for battle and we're all in it. All of this ties in in context to how we think when things are not going our way. When life is hard. When daily getting out of bed is a challenge. When we dread everything on our calendar for the next week or the next month. Thinking on Jesus' example and his death provides the way for us to move forward in terms of how we think about all that is around us. And again, Peter's addressing people who have dealt with challenges. Their lives were hard and I know some of your lives are hard as well. Add to it, 
again, this isn't a cause and effect. You can do the right thing and still suffer. That certainly happened to Jesus and he said it'll happen to you. Sometimes you do the right thing and there's a bad outcome, not a positive outcome from our earthly sense. Sometimes you obeyed scripture and you paid a terrible price for it. Sometimes you obeyed God and things didn't turn out the way you expected. In all those times, Peter is telling us we think differently. Remember Jesus. Remember what he did and purpose in your heart beforehand and during and after. I'm not going to waver. I'm going to be like Jesus. I think something about hardships are uniquely challenging for American Christians because in many respects... There's a little subtle lie that creeps into our thinking just by the nature of our culture. I consider it a blessing, as I'm sure you do, to live in America, where at least today, in a state such as Florida, we're free to worship the Lord. We're free to live out our faith. But we live in a society that can create the false sense that says you're entitled to something. You're entitled to the American dream. You're entitled to a life of leisure and comfort without hardship, without difficulty. That's not life, though. Certainly, it's no biblical picture of life, and if you've lived very long, you understand that's not how life is anyway. Let me say in a very clear way what you already know, but it lines up with biblical truth. From an earthly perspective and with sympathy to all the hurts and hardships every one of us endures, life is not fair. And it never will be until the Lord returns. Sin has corrupted everything. Certainly we see the corruption in our own heart, but look around us. Society is decaying. Life is falling apart. Sin continues to march towards destruction. And Peter is saying to us, remember it wasn't fair for Jesus either. He didn't have an easy road. It wasn't roses for him. He endured hardships, difficulties. He endured suffering and injustice that we can't even comprehend and he did it to make salvation possible for sinners like us. So we're supposed to arm ourselves with the purpose to think like Jesus, to be prepared no matter what, to obey We remember his death. We remember his suffering. We remember his approach. And those become our example. One of the things that I love about the Bible is it's honest about struggles. And it's interesting because the Bible recalls and records a moment of deep anguish in Jesus that shows he understands fully what he was facing at the cross. For example, in Matthew 26, verse 38 and 39, it's recorded this. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus points the way. Certainly, there's nothing shameful about looking at what we face in front of us and saying, God, please take it away. And sometimes, by God's grace, he does take it away. But you're supposed to be armed with the same purpose that says, Lord, I'm asking this of you. 
But if you know that it's for my good and your glory, your will, not my will. And this applies even in the face of hardship, perhaps especially in the face of injustice when it's not fair. We have to train our minds. This is a volitional act. It's an act of the will to choose to think Christ-like thoughts. Not to think of what, oh, I want and what's best for my comfort, but to choose to think ahead that I'm going to prepare and purpose in my heart to do God's will, not my will. Even if it produces heartache and harm like what faced Jesus. Jesus knew the agony of the cross before he endured the cross. He knew what it would entail to follow the Lord's will, to follow the Father's will. Physical suffering, but not just physical torture, but the incomprehensible pouring of the wrath of God on him for our sins. And yet at the moment of darkest pain and deepest anguish, Jesus chose obedience. He chose to think on God's will, not his own. That's our example. That's what we're supposed to arm ourselves with the same purpose. It's the purpose that Jesus had. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, I think, describes well what we're called to do. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus' example is supposed to transform how we look at everything. We're to arm ourselves with that purpose. And we can arm ourselves with that purpose. Because supernaturally God's given us his spirit. If you've endured or are enduring difficulties and hardships. And things that aren't fair. Realize that it doesn't justify you living your own life. Even in that moment, you're called to be holy as God is holy. But Jesus gave you the example. You've got to have the mind of Christ. And let me encourage you, you already have it. 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the ultimate point is this, in the midst of hardships and difficulties, and even before the hardships and difficulties come, you purpose in your heart before the Lord, I'm going to follow your will. Think on Jesus, fix your mind on Jesus, not your circumstances, not just the trials. And again, there's nothing sinful of saying, Lord, I don't want to face this. What's sinful is to turn away without saying, Lord, I don't want this, but your will, not my will be done. I understand this is a struggle every day. I struggle with this every day. The battle is always in the heart and mind. I do a lot of biblical counseling. I did counseling before I came to Lakeside. I do counseling at Lakeside. And I will tell you just from experience, over and over, I think people misdiagnose their own problems. They want their circumstances to change. Quite often they come to counseling because their circumstances are bad and they don't understand the change isn't the circumstances, the change is on the inside. It's the heart. 
they think I'm struggling and I'm sinning, but it's not really my fault. I mean, I love the Lord. It's just all these things. And if you can show me how to get rid of all these things, then I'll be obedient. That's not true. James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's all about your mind and your thinking. We've been given all the resources at our disposal. We've been given the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of God dwelling within us. We have the word of God to guide us in difficulties. But as believers, we have to purpose in our heart to think rightly. Peter is telling us that's the battle. We've got to arm ourselves. We've got to be equipped to think rightly about all of these things. Scripture is your friend. Philippians 4, 8 is a verse I go to all the time in my own life. I certainly reference it in counseling, but I have it posted on, on the wall in my office for me, not for others. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Could I suggest to you that Jesus and his death and his example fits all those categories? To guide us when your mind is leading you astray, arm yourselves, think on Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think that's what Peter's calling us to, to arm ourselves, to be ready to face all of the difficulties of life, to be ready to be like Jesus. We need to remember him, fix our eyes on him. But as is often the case, the thinking is supposed to lead to action. And that leads us to the second practical impact of remembering the Lord's death. First, Jesus' example in death must govern our thinking. Secondly, Jesus' example in death must govern our actions. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. As we continue in verse 1 into verse 2, there's a statement that at least in my initial study caused me a little confusion because of the way the English is worded, but I think I understand it well. But Peter is explaining the basis for transformed thinking, translating into holy living, transformed actions. And he begins with this first part, and it's the second clause in verse one, and it's what caused me a little confusion initially. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, he's not saying that Jesus who suffered in the flesh has now ceased from sin now that he's dead. That's not it at all. Rather, he's talking about the fact that we identify with the suffering of Jesus with his death when we come to faith in Christ and it has practical implications. He's not saying that if we suffer in the flesh enough, we won't sin anymore. I think most of us would take that trade to avoid sinning. That would be wonderful. No, he's making a broader theological statement, which other writers, and we'll read about it, say elsewhere, but it has to do with what happens when we are identified with the death of Christ in our salvation. There's an essential heart change that occurs when we've been born again 
And it's this heart change that changes everything because it allows us and gives us the capacity and the ability to be obedient. Paul, I think, describes what Peter is summarizing in a very short phrase. Paul describes it in a little bit more detail in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. Paul says this, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Peter in a very short phrase, is summarizing that same type of truth. When we come to faith in Christ, we identify with his death. Our old self was crucified with him. And all Peter is saying in this phrase is, look, we identify with Christ in his death, so we're no longer slaves to sin. You can be holy as God is holy because you've been given a new heart, you've been given new life in Christ. What was impossible before your salvation, God has made completely possible in Christ. That's what Peter is referencing. That's what that little clause means. We're no longer slaves to sin, helplessly controlled by our fleshly desires that we can't do anything about. It's important truth that you have to grasp if you're going to ever Follow the will of the Lord. The longer you live as a believer, you understand the struggle against sin does not go away. It's not. Every day it's a battle. But our bondage to sin, our hopelessness in sin is done. We're not enslaved without hope. We can choose obedience to the Lord at every turn regardless of how difficult life is. In fact, even if you're in a seemingly impossible situation, I can tell you, not because I'm smart, but because the Word of God says it, you never are forced to sin. At every moment when you face a crossroads, you can choose to follow the will of God just like Jesus did. How do I know this? Because of the promise of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So if you think to yourself... Well, I'm the only one that's ever dealt with this. You're wrong. The Bible says otherwise. Even your temptation is common to fallen humanity. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. None of us should ever sin. And yet the truth is, we do, because we don't look for the way of escape. At times we even justify, hey, I, I should deserve to do this because my life is hard. The word of God says otherwise. The truth that Jesus 
has freed us from the bondage of sin is supposed to change how we approach living. Continuing with Peter's words, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We're not in bondage to sin anymore. We're not sin slaves so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God. That's the battle for holiness. Are we going to follow our wants, the lust of our hearts, the source of temptation on the inside according to James, or are we going to follow the will of God like Jesus? It sums up our calling before the Lord. It's not complicated. The outcome of the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners, that we remember that, that we remember his determination to do the will of the Father, even at great personal cost, by going to the cross to die, we're supposed to remember that, and we're supposed to remember that that freed us because we're identified with his death. We're no longer slaves to sin. It's supposed to impact every day of your life from now on. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. In other words, as long as you're breathing, you're supposed to be holy. As long as God has given you breath, you're supposed to be striving and purposing in your heart that I'm going to follow the will of God. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Are we going to follow what makes us feel good in the moment, what we feel justified in doing because things are so difficult? Or are we going to follow what God tells us so clearly in his word, moment by moment, day by day? The words of Jesus really should be our daily reflection. For example, in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And even in the face of the greatest heartache and dread any human could ever imagine, Jesus himself saying he was grieved to the point of death it was so heavy upon him. Even in that moment, he chose to follow God's will regardless of the humanly consequences. And as in a few moments we reflect on communion, that's what we're remembering. It's the contrast of what it looks like to follow the will of God versus our daily struggle against our flesh. But again, it plays out not just on Sunday morning once a month or Sunday evening once a month. It plays out daily, day by day, as we remember what Jesus did and purpose in our hearts to follow Jesus. The question you face at every moment is this, are you going to choose yourself and your comfort and your wants and needs or are you going to choose the will of God who sent his son to die for you to make you a part of his family. The words of Jesus stated many places, not my will, but your will should be our calling card daily as we navigate life. Really could be the rallying cry for our lives. Certainly in the face of injustice, when things are hard, when things are difficult, In fact, Peter's restating a truth here that he's already stated in detail in his word where he held up Jesus in terms of how to endure in difficult circumstances. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. I'll read through verse 24. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Peter's focus has been relentless. Regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the challenges of life, regardless of how difficult it will be tomorrow morning to wake up and face the day, there's only two paths. Are we going to follow our flesh or are we going to follow our Savior? There's not a third path. There's no loophole that weds together the, the lust of the flesh with the will of God. They're incompatible. At every moment of every day, we're faced with countless choices. At every moment of every day, we may be faced with temptation. At that moment, we know that God is faithful. He'll provide the way out. And one of the means that he gives us to identify the way to escape is remember Jesus and what he did. And then apply it and follow his example and do God's will, not our own. This isn't just an academic exercise, and I don't say this lightly. My life has not been easy, and I know many of you have suffered worse. You can think now in a second about the heartache that you're enduring, the difficulties you're facing. Maybe you've been mistreated at work. Maybe you've been abused by someone. Maybe you've been mistreated by your parents. Maybe you've been mistreated by your children. Maybe your physical health is falling apart. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe no one recognizes the good you do, but everyone can see every little stumble and fall in your life. At each one of those moments, it's the battle of your heart, but it's the call of God to remember Jesus. Before you take the next step, before you retaliate, before you lash out, before you defend yourself, remember Jesus. Follow his example. He faced something much worse as he saw the cross. He knew the suffering. He knew the abandonment. He knew the torture such that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you feel that way maybe even this morning. But you're not forsaken. You're beloved by God. And remember that Jesus endured and he kept pressing forward. And even in his moments of anguish, he said, not my will, but your will, Lord. And then he acted accordingly. It's part of what we're remembering at communion. And it should inspire and motivate us to think on these things every single day. When we feel like, I, I'm okay to act this way. Even though it's contrary to scripture, it's not okay. Follow Jesus. Remember Jesus. For time's sake, I won't read it, but it's worthwhile looking at Galatians 5, 19 to 25 because that explains in longer form what Peter is talking about here. The deeds of the flesh, the lust of men, and it's a painful laundry list. And then the fruit of the Spirit is the example of Jesus. And we're to walk by the Spirit. 
So as you're looking at the difficulties and as you're evaluating your choices, just read that scripture. Where does it fit? Is your reaction going to be a deed of the flesh? Don't do it. It's a temptation, but there's a way of escape. Beg God to show it to you. Or in that moment, are you going to follow the fruit of the Spirit regardless of the cost? Because in your heart, you've purposed not my will, Lord, but your will be done. I'm going to go back to Romans 6. I read verses 5 to 11. I'm going to read a little bit further from verse 11 because I think it's a good summary of what Peter's calling us to do. The Apostle Paul says this beginning at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Let me encourage you this morning. I know all of us fall short. Can't tell you how many things I've confessed as I've been studying this material. You may have blown it time and time again. You may have ignored the way of escape you may have let sin in a moment of weakness be master over you when you're called otherwise let me remind you that there's still hope that's part of why we remember through communion the Lord's death because of the promises of God of what that death enabled before we prepare and there's going to be a moment for reflection but the words of 1 John 1 9 are appropriate if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and miracle of miracles because of Jesus' death that we remember even if you've blown it God doesn't hate you if you're his child Romans 8 verse 1 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Today we remember all those things when we remember the Lord's death. So let me encourage you, don't be content with your sin. Turn away from it. Obey the scriptures. But if Satan's been whispering in your ear, there's no hope for you, you're too far gone, don't believe the lie. God has no condemnation in his heart for you. He loves you. Confess your sins and he will cleanse you. The personal application of remembering the Lord's death is crucial. But what we're about to do in transitioning to our time of communion is also important because we're doing this together as the corporate body of Christ. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes as his family. But let me encourage you, communion's a time for the children of God, not for unbelievers. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, communion is not for you. Just let the elements sit beside you. But if you're an unbeliever, let me encourage you. God's mercy is not done. Yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me, that includes everyone here, everyone hearing my voice. But Jesus died to save sinners. 
You can never work off the guilt of your sin. But if you'll turn to Jesus, he died once for all, the just for the unjust. And his blood can make you holy. Trust in him. Cry out to God for mercy. But if you are a believer, let me also caution you. Don't approach the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. The Apostle Paul gives a very stark warning. I won't read it, but in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32, he, he makes it clear that we should examine ourselves and confess our sins. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but if we willingly mock God in our sin as believers, his hand of discipline can fall upon us. So much so that Paul said some actually died and others were sick. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a song on the piano. While the song on the piano is playing, I want you to examine your heart. If you have unconfessed sin, prepare yourselves, confess them to the Lord so that you won't approach the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And after we've reflected and confessed, we'll partake of the elements together as a church family. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for how easily we neglect to remember the Lord's death. Lord, forgive us for the carelessness with which most of us at times have approached the Lord's table, viewing it as just another church activity. Lord, impress upon our hearts the practical implications of the fact that you died for sinners and when you made us a part of your family, it comes with expectations and responsibilities. But Lord, it also comes with your mercy and grace and the overflowing abundance of your good gifts to us which enable us to do all that you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We pray that any who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would work in their heart that you would help them see that they're sinners before a holy God and that the wages of sin is death. But I pray also, Lord, that you'll show them the shelter of the cross, that if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they can have forgiveness. And for the rest of us, Lord, as we listen to this hymn being played on the piano, I pray that you would call to our minds any sins that are unconfessed that could cause us to approach your table in an unworthy manner. Help us confess them and prepare us, Lord, to together celebrate and remember your death. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As you prepare to take this wafer, I'll read the familiar scriptures that the Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 11, where he explained what it is that we're doing. 
beginning at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This isn't a magical piece of bread. There's no mystical effect. It's just a good and appropriate reminder that Jesus willingly laid down his body for sinners like us. So join me in prayer as we thank him for that. Dear Heavenly Father, we do marvel at what you went through to redeem us. Lord, your body was stripped and tortured and you were nailed to a cross. And Lord, you knew how painful and how hard that would be and yet you willingly chose to father the, the Father's will and lay down your physical body for sinners like us. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to remember your love for us expressed through your broken body. And we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Joel is going to lead us in a song before we partake of the cup. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Counselor, Comforter, Keeper, Spirit we long to embrace. You offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost the way. Oh, we've hopelessly lost the way, but you are the one that we praise, you are the one we adore, you give the healing and grace our hearts always hunger for. Oh, our hearts always hunger for. The Apostle Paul continued in 1 Corinthians at verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, this is not mystical juice. This isn't literally the blood of Jesus. But it's an important and profound symbol of what Jesus did when he shed his blood for sinners like us. So let's thank him for his sacrifice. Dear Heavenly Father, we again say thank you. You poured out your blood to forgive sins. Lord, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but your one sacrifice for all time paid the sin debt for all those who would ever believe, and we say thank you for that. Lord, as we have this opportunity to remember, we pray that this remembrance would not just be fleeting, but that it would impact how we live so that we would give thanks, not just with our words, but with our lives. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we come to the close. If you don't mind, if you'll stand, I will close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we've had to worship together with your people today. Lord, we pray that our lives would be a light to a lost and dying world as we leave this place. And we pray daily we would live for your glory following the example of Jesus our Savior so that we would pursue not our will but your will. To your glory we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.